Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Caleb Zacharin, Assistant Editor of the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Alexandra Hudson, founder of Civic Renaissance and adjunct professor at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. We're discussing her book, The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves. This book proffers civility as a lost art that could improve our ability as citizens to engage in difficult and fraught debates. In an age of vitriol and hatred over political differences, Alexandra has a powerful message. Alexandra, thanks for joining me today on the New Books Network. Thanks for having me, Caleb. Of course. You know, you know, I, I think this book, what's so amazing about it is how widely you pull from different sources. You, you really uh, uh, are extremely uh, widely read, which which is always interesting to see. Uh, and I do like love uh, these sorts of books that, that try and take a concept and really just drill down uh, as much as possible. But before jumping into the book, I was wondering if you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your background. I uh, was raised by Judy the Manners Lady. My mother is this internationally renowned expert on manners and etiquette. So I was raised in this home that was very attentive to social norms. My mother taught us our P's and Q's to mind our P's and Q's. But she was also uh, an amazing model for my brothers and me of the spirit of true civility, the soul of civility, just an other-orientedness and graciousness and hospitality. Growing up, our home was a revolving door of strangers, newcomers to our community, homestays, exchange students. She was passionate about the human social project and passionate about bringing uh, people together across difference and into community. That for her was was the good life. So I'm grateful to have had her as a model. Um, she also, though, uh, was very patient with me. I, I am not very good at following rules. I don't like being told what to do. I'm constitutionally allergic to authority. But I, she promised me that following these rules would help me succeed and work and school and life. And she was right until I found myself at the United States Department of Education. And there I was working in government, federal, federal government, and everything I thought I knew about what I was good at and how to get along with others was questioned. There were these two extremes. On one hand, there were people with sharp elbows and who were willing to step on anyone to get ahead. And on the other hand, there were people who were um, polite and polished and suave. I thought they were my people, Caleb. And then I realized these are the people that would um, smile and flatter me one moment and stab me in the back the next. And that puzzled me because the one thing my mother had said to me growing up was that manners mattered because they were an outward extension of our inward character. And yet here I was surrounded by people who were well-mannered enough but ruthless and cruel. And so that, that, that experience in government, this experience observing human nature while I was in politics, it, it helped clarify for me um, an urgent need to think clearly about what are the what are the guiding principles that can help us flourish across deep difference? And how do we distinguish from the norms and modes of behavior that are actually going to help us 
get along with others and thrive and peacefully coexist versus the ones that actually, the norms that actually facilitate using others, the manipulation and dividing us. And um, so that that uh, experience galvanized me to write, that was like an, an impetus and an immediate cause of, um, of, of me writing this book. I left government, I zoomed out and thought, what is personhood? What does it mean to be a human being? And what is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our shared humanity? And what does that look like in practice? And um, that was how I came to this sort of moral foundation of civility, which is the bare minimum of respect that we are owed and owed to others by virtue of our personhood and our human dignity as as human beings, uh, as distinct from mere politeness, which I'm happy to talk more about. Yeah, you know, as you as you write about civility and incivility, have been with us since time immemorial. Uh, and, and before you know, really drilling down and, and jumping into definitions, are, are there any particular stories uh, that you find might help listeners just to illustrate uh, ways of thinking about civility and its its role in life? Well, one story I love to talk about. Um, that that illustrates this essential distinction between civility and politeness. So as I define it, civility is a disposition of the heart. It's it's a way of seeing others as our moral equals who are worthy of respect. Politeness is etiquette. It's manners. It's technique. It's the rules of politeness alone. It's behavior. It's the form. So outside, civility is inside, an inner disposition. Sometimes actually respecting someone requires Actually, loving someone requires breaking the rules of politeness um, to tell a hard truth or to engage in robust debate or to just flourish together. Uh, a story I love that illustrates this is when Queen Victoria was hosting the Queen of Persia to her home for dinner. And uh, when they were sitting down to dinner, the Queen of Persia did the unthinkable. She took the bowl in front of her and tipped it to her lips to take a sip. The room was scandalized because this was a finger bowl. It was meant to wash your dirty hands. What did Queen Victoria do? She didn't turn up her nose and look down on her guest for breaking this, you know, obvious rule of propriety. She tipped the bowl to her lips and did the exact same thing. She broke the rules of politeness and etiquette and propriety for the sake of friendship and 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 community and building social trust across difference. And you know, one thing I say in the book is that the rules are easy. They're easy to memorize, which is why we teach them, we latch on to them, we teach them to chill for children. But once we learn the rules of politeness and etiquette, we need to know when to break them for the sake of the human social project, for the same sake of flourishing. So uh, rules can be a, a decent place to start for kids, but it's, it's certainly not where we should end. We need to instead um, both model and teach our kids, but also cultivate in ourselves the disposition of actually respecting others, the disposition of civility that will help us uh, know when to break the rules and know when to have discernment and discretion. Because human life is too complex to be reduced to static principles of and maxims. Um, and so we need civility, that, that disposition to help us know what the context requires and when it's appropriate to break the rules of propriety for the sake of friendship. Throughout the book, you look at at the views of different philosophers and thinkers, for example, Augustine, uh, among among others, uh, can you share some of these uh, these older historical views of civility and what you view as some of the the uh, what they get right, and then maybe where uh, they might need to be to be amended for for today's world? This question 
of how we do life together. How do we flourish across deep difference? This is the most important question of our day, which is why I wrote this book now. But it's also a timeless question. This is the defining question of the human species. Uh, as long as we've been around as human beings, we've wanted to come together in groups and in relationship. We are profoundly social as a species. But morally and biologically, we are defined also by self-love. We're, 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 we're geared to meet our own needs before others. And those two facets of who we are are intention. And that is why friendship, society, community is always fragile. It is never a foregone conclusion. Uh, one expression of our self-love that thinkers like Augustine and others have um, honed in on is, is called the incurvatus se, the inward curve upon the self. And an expression of that is the libido dominandi, that within the soul of each of us, there exists this base love, lust to dominate others. That's an expression of our that's the worst expression of our of our self-love. This is within every single one of us, without exception. I love the story of the Cherokee grandfather that illustrates this. He's talking to his grandson. And the grandson tells it, the grandfather tells his grandson, there are two wolves within it within me, within you, within every person that are battling for primacy. One wolf is malicious and cruel and domineering. And the other wolf is gracious and hospitable and kind. And they are warring within us at every moment of every day. And the grandson says, but who will win? And the grandfather replies, whichever wolf you feed. And how, how do we feed these wolves within us? Through our habits, through our norms, through our daily small practices that we don't realize that even the small things we do that we don't think affect anyone else, they affect our, the, the battle going on within our soul. Uh, friend and fiend. That's that's how um, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, uh, that, that's that in Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, that's how Robert Louis Stevenson characterizes that duality of human nature between the good wolf and the bad wolf, friend and fiend. Um, and that if we too often act in ways that exacerbate the libido dominandi within us, that we will, um, it's soon that the libido dominandi becomes the lust to dominate. Um, the, the, sorry, the lust to dominate becomes the dominating lust and it overtakes us. And it's exactly what happens in the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde that this prestigious doctor has these um, dark desires that he's repressed his entire life. And so he makes this potion that allows him to transform into the evil Mr. Hyde who lets him you know, get away consequence-free while acting on his baser desires. But soon, the more he drinks the potion, the more he indulges his inner Mr. Hyde, soon he's able to transform into Hyde spontaneously without drinking the potion. And then sometimes Mr. Hyde overtakes him permanently at, at the end, at the end, at the end of the at the end of the novel and ultimately kills Dr. Dr. Jekyll, that prestigious Dr. Apple, that, that he had that 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 lust to dominate that he had fed became the dominating lust and completely overtook him in the end. And so, what is Augustine's antidote to that? The the lust to dominate and that becomes the dominating dominating lust is the ordering of our loves. He calls it the ordo amoris, our rightly ordered loves. That um, for for Augustine as a theist, that was the dual commandment to love God, love others, love love ourselves last. But there are secular ideas of this as well. For example, Augustine was 
very influenced by Plato, who believed in that we have to, that adjust, we have to rightly order our loves as individuals in order to uh, have a just society, that a just, a society of just individuals with rightly ordered loves, where our rationality ruled our passions, restrained the baser aspects of ourselves through our courage. That was the thumos, that was the rightly ordered um, platonic ideal of, an, of a just citizen, but that, that mirrored and comprised a just society as well. So yes, I think it's important to look to history and to look to what thoughtful people before us have um, have said about this topic, because if we misdiagnose this as a as a now problem, as a problem of modernity, we're not going to sufficiently address it because we're not understanding the seriousness and timelessness and gravity of this issue. Something I was thinking about it, and you do address it in the book, is just the importance of integrity, uh, and and especially integrity when. And, and you hint at this a little bit in your, your early story about your experience working uh, in politics, you know, integrity when hypocrites appeared to succeed all around us. How, how do we maintain that and why should we? So part of my argument is that hypocrisy, uh, well, first of all, integrity is inner coherence. It is the all the parts of the self making sense together. So our external actions are corroborated by our internal motivations and thoughts and feelings. Hypocrisy is when there is that disconnect between our inner motivations and outer conduct. For example, we tell our boss they have a great haircut and they look very dashing that day because it's our performance view coming up this week. You know, we secretly, or maybe we're secretly, secretly trying to undermine them and, and vying for their job. You know, like it's, it's having, harboring one motivation, but doing something externally that doesn't corroborate the internal for the self, for the sake of the self. I distinguish, uh, and for in that example, it's like wanting that promotion or wanting your job, your boss's job. I distinguish that sort of hypocrisy. It's the disconnect between the inner and outer for the sake of self. And I distinguish that between inauthenticity, which isn't always bad. Sometimes it's a disconnect between inner and outer for the sake of others. For example, you know, um, my husband asks me to pick up his dry cleaning on the way home from at the gym and I don't really want to. I'm tired and I just want to go home. But I'll, I'll smile and tell him and I'll, and I'll do it for him because that's a way to, to love him and, and to serve him in, the, in that way. And so it's a disconnect. You know, it's, it's not actually what I want to do or say, but I do it anyways to serve and for the sake of the relationship, for the sake of our, the, our friendship, which is the basis of any marriage. Uh, that's inauthenticity, but it's not hypocrisy because it's for the sake, it's, in, it's inauthenticity for the sake of of others and, and and the human social project, not not the self. So integrity is all the parts of the self making sense together, and which is important because there's this information asymmetry inherent in social life. All we can ever see in others is all we'll ever know about others is what we can see, how they act, how they dress, how they talk, and that is a perf imperfect correlation with the true state inside our souls, and it requires an enormous amount of humility to engage with others knowing that on one hand all we'll ever really get is what we see from others but that that's imperfect it's not always going to be perfectly representative of of the inside so um what we can do is to strive to be people of character and integrity ourselves that choosing to act according to a higher level a higher standard that that is an essential part of building trust 
and and reclaiming much much needed social trust in, in our society where we're very skeptical of others. We're 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 in the society that values all like that what that what we see in others, but we're also very mindful that you know that's not always the case. That what we see is not always what we're going to get. Why should people maintain civility in the face of inequality or lack of freedom? Uh, you know, essentially, you know, how how does uh, civil disobedience? How does someone rightly go about civil disobedience, and why is civil disobedience a better path than uncivil disobedience? I make this this in my book a core part of my argument is that there's an essential distinction between civility and politeness. That today there are there there is this essential distinction today. Unfortunately, there are two groups. Of people that that dominate our public life today. On one hand, people say we need more civility and gentility and politeness in our in our world, and they hearken back to this golden age that we've fallen from of that that had you know comity and gentility and chivalry. And that if only we could get back to that, then then we'll get back on track. And then on the other hand, people say no, civility and politeness is part of the problem. It is a tool of white supremacy, of the patriarchy, and it's a, it's been an enemy of social progress and equality and freedom and justice for all, that we um, need less civility and politeness in public life because those things have been you know enemies of, of, of social progress. What both those contingents fail to recognize is that um, civility and politeness are different. And when when the when people are criticizing civility and politeness, what they often mean is 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 they're criticizing politeness. You know the the tone policing, the silencing, that the the mores that are used to exercise uh, power over the powerlessness, powerless to keep them in positions of powerlessness. And so I say, um, you know, separate civility and politeness, and and redirect those criticisms towards politeness. In my vision of civility. My definition of civility, again, it is it is about respecting others enough to sometimes tell them when they're wrong, um, tell hard truths, engage in robust debate, that that's a way of actually respecting others. And uh, I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience in my in my definition of civility, that sometimes civility demands action. So civility both demands action in some cases, like having difficult conversations, uh, but also takes action off the table at times as well. For example, never engaging in violence, ad hominem attack, things like that, things that would degrade um, and disrespect the personhood of others. So I reclaim the whole tradition of civil disobedience, focusing on Gandhi, on Dr. King, on Henry David Thoreau. Um, Dr. King, for example, he loved America. And he loved his fellow Americans and any person, even those that he that, you know, hated him because he was black and any Amer any 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 anyone who wanted to be a part of his movement of peaceful, nonviolent resistance. He made them undergo a, a process of purification that that first sought to cultivate love and respect and affection for their fellow human beings, fellow Americans, that the bigoted white supremacists that they were protesting and only after they cultivated that disposition of affection and respect for their fellow human beings, then they could protest. And in fact, that love and respect informed their protest because it's confronting them with their fundamental hypocrisy and 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 from their perspective, their misguided views about the world. Um, but again, so civility demands action, but it also takes 
other action off the table. For example, that is why um, they never engaged in, in violence. And in fact, when they received violence, that that seared the conscience of America, where they were, they were exposed the ugliness of of the white supremacists that they were protesting and and again public support for for that movement. So contrary to what many argue, civility has been and continue to, can continue to be this effective tool of mitigating social injustice and of social progress and equality. You talk about uh, the letter from Birmingham jail, which is just, you know, if, if the for those who haven't read it, it really is one of the greatest uh greatest pieces ever ever written you know it should be it's a part of the you know that it really is a part of the the canon um and just an unbelievable uh document you know you know you, you also talk about this book our, our current era of polarization uh, you know the, the some of the problems that people face on the internet where these faceless nameless people can go on and say the most horrific horrendous things to each other uh and and how do you view, or at least, uh, you know, how, how do you think people can can go about strengthening civility in this era of polarization, uh, especially in the digital age? It's a great question. On one hand, this is a timeless problem. What we've been, we've been grappling with since the dawn of our species, because it's in our nature. It's a human problem. On the other hand, there are things that are different about our current era. For example, technology. We didn't have social media 2000 years ago or 5000 years ago and that and we do and we do now and uh now mistruths, hurtful things that are said and done, they have the potential to reach millions, hurt millions of people in a way that is unprecedented. And digitally mediated communication is often the most common form of communication people have with with others with others. So that that diminishes that, that dampens the humanity of the person on the other side of the of the screen. Um, and so what does it look like and how might we each maintain front of mind the dignity and the personhood of the person on the other side of the phone call, of the Zoom call, of the of of the platform formerly known as X, you know, that like remem- remembering there is a human being often, I guess not always in the world of trolls, but often on the other side of that interaction, how might that temper us? And our tendency to, you know, just shoot off an email or shoot off a really, you know, hurtful tweet that's assuming the worst about someone. But I do think that the um, digitally mediated media, uh, it exacerbates our tendency to, we, we already have this tendency within us to dehumanize people that we don't like and disagree with. That's, that is a core part, a core expression of our, our selfishness that's been across history and culture where we define the in-group as people who are like us and the out-group as people who are not. And the, and the out-group is... um are not are not equal to us. They're not as human. They're not worthy of the same rights and respect that that we owe the people who are like us. But civility inverts that, and it says that even people who are not like us are owed some 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 bare minimum of respect and decency just because they are our fellow human beings. You also you talk about in the book just the importance of forgiveness, and I think so much of what leads to incivility. Is our inability to forgive others, or 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 as you said, to assume the worst, to assume that someone said something or did something that it must mean that they are evil and that they're unforgivable. Uh, and how do you think people could go about forgiveness, uh, especially in this age where everyone hates each other so much? I think it's it's really important to remember that unforgiveness, just like incivility, hurts both parties. We live in this age where 
we hear a lot of apocalyptic rhetoric, like the other side is irredeemably bad and we are just so right. And the other side is so bad that they're not worthy of respect, a bare minimum of respect. And we have to be willing to do anything to win. And we hear that rhetoric a lot on all sides of the political spectrum. Uh, but what people and, and so we hear like, you know, nice guys finish last. And what we need are strong men, bullies, people who are willing to do anything to to win. And what I think people don't realize is that when we are cruel and malicious to our fellow human beings, we don't just hurt them. We hurt ourselves, too. This is exactly what Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. wrote in his letter, letter from Birmingham Jail, borrowing from Socrates. So Socrates said that virtue is its own reward. It is health for the soul, a just soul, a rightly ordered soul. You know, where our, our baser in instincts are reined in by reason. That is its own reward. An, a, a vicious soul is a sick soul, and that's its own punishment. And Dr. King said the same thing. He borrowed that and analogized it to segregation. He said, segregation hurts both parties. It hurts the soul of the segregated by giving them a false sense of inferiority. It hurts the soul of the segregator by giving them a false sense of superiority. And that it's mutually harmful. It deforms, it debases, and corrodes the humanity of both parties. The same is true for for unforgiveness. Like unforgiveness, it, it can be easy to tell ourselves a story that we are maintaining power. Like I've 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 been susceptible to telling myself this story too that I hold power over the person to whom I'm holding a grudge against, and and that that has to me felt like a locus of power. And and what I fail, and many people fail to appreciate, is that. We lose power, actually, by holding bitterness towards others. It's draining emotionally. Like a part of our brains are dedicated to nursing this grudge is like a part of an energy leak that we could redirect towards more productive and joy-filled things. Like inverting that narrative, that that source of, of bitterness, that, that, that bitterness we're holding towards others is not a place of holding power. It's actually a place of losing power. And that being free from bitterness and, and grudges and unforgiveness is where our power can be. I, I love that analogy of, of unforgiveness being like drinking poison and expecting someone else to die. I think that's so true. But what I also think people miss about forgiveness, first, that it doesn't just hurt, it doesn't hurt others as much as it hurts us. Secondly, um, that it doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean sweeping difference under the rug. That's what politeness might want to do. You're like just, you know, forgive and forget, right? But forgiving doesn't mean forgetting. It doesn't mean making the same mistake over and over again and trusting someone uh, and pretending that they haven't hurt you when they have. It means being wise and prudent, being open to people changing, but also being wise and, and prudential in how we engage with others and, and knowing that trust is easy to lose and it requires effort to be earned again. Uh, and that's, that's hard. Again, this is why civility, this disposition of respecting people is far better suited to the complex stuff of human social life rather than just a set of maxims and a set of rules that 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 don't prepare us well for, for life with others or prepare us perfectly for life with others. So um, civility requires having hard conversations. It requires atonement. And 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 um and ideally you'll you can have reconciliation where it's you and the party that's hurt you or you and the party you've hurt coming together and and gaining mutual understanding and having that 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 restoration that can be really beautiful and, and healing but also knowing that we can forgive without being captive without without the reconciliation without the other party even asking for forgiveness 
And that that's incredibly freeing. And that's incredibly powerful. Power instilling as well for us. It's empowering for us. So not only are you an author, uh, but, you're, but you're also a practitioner of, short, of sorts. Uh, and you know, I wonder if you could just share with listeners a little bit about some of the ways that you're working, not just, you know, not just as a writer, because of course, that's a big part of getting your message out there and talking about civility, but you know, other ways that you're looking at and working to improve civility in the United States and, and beyond. I have a publication and a newsletter called Civic Renaissance that's dedicated to beauty, goodness, and truth and reviving the wisdom of the past to help us lead better lives. And I'm passionate about the great conversation and and the way that thoughtful people across history and culture have created works of art and books and stories that can help us think more clearly about the stuff of the life well lived. And um, I am very intellectually omnivorous and I enjoy um, I enjoy learning and sharing that with others. And so my community at Civic Renaissance of you know, 48, 50,000 people are people who are curious as well and enjoy learning and, and growing. So please do consider joining us over there. And in many ways, um, my, my work on civility is very much a humanistic manifesto, a manifesto of, that I hope helps our society regain an appreciation of the gift of being human, the gift of personhood, and that um, it helps us better respect the dignity and personhood uh, of ourselves, but also in others, even those that 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 we disagree with. And I, I hope my book in um, drawing from the humanistic traditions, the pro-human traditions and ideas that have been found independently across history and culture, I think I hope that also embodies the sort of vision and and life vision of the good life that I hope to uh, promote and 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 um, disseminate in in my book as well. So thanks for asking. Yeah, I, I think uh, you know there, there's really so much, and I think yeah, you're you're clearly a very omnivorous uh, reader, drawing on so many different. We we only we only mentioned really in this interview only only a few of the uh, the writers and thinkers that that you that you draw on you draw on a lot uh, on a lot more. So I, I recommend people check the book out for for those reasons alone. You really do have a very nuanced approach and definition uh, to civility. Uh, well, Alexander, thank you so much for being a guest on the New Books Network. It was great to have you on. Um, I recommend people go and they check out The Soul of Civility, Timeless Principles to Heal Society and Ourselves.